You are listening to the Practice Growth Podcast with Sean Terrell. Welcome to the Practice Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Terrell. And on this week's episode, we pick up where we left off last week. David Haynes is with me again to continue the conversation around dental transitions. David is the Vice President of National Practice Sales with Menlo Dental Transitions. And Menlo is a dental practice brokerage headquartered in Tempe, Arizona. David, great to have you back for another episode. Sean, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So where I want to pick up and dive back in, and if you missed anything from last week, go ahead and go back and and listen to David's backstory and some of the things we hit on last week. But where I want to start today is on the topic of practice valuations. And the first step in that transition process for a seller dentist is having that practice valuated. And my, my question, my first question to you, David, is if that initial valuation is not in the ballpark of what the owner dentist needs or wants to walk away, uh, what are the options for that dentist? Yeah, it's a good question. So we have several things that will take place. Um, this We could either discover this through a formal appraisal or through just an initial evaluation of your financials to get uh, an approximate range of value. And sometimes that's too low from the, you know, it's either not going to cover your debts or it's just not what you expected or wanted. So there's a few things that uh, there's some do's and don'ts. Uh, there's some things that sellers should consider as they are in this situation. Um, I, I think the first thing that I should emphasize is that you should sell your office while you're on top of your game. And, mm. and before you, you know, before there's an opportunity for the practice to decline, if you're getting older and you're, you, you don't necessarily need the money, um, you know, it's probably better to sell before there's a decline in revenue. So it's, it's very different selling an office that's got stable or increasing, increasing revenues versus one that's in decline. So mm. if you're on top of your game and the practice is doing really well, that's a good time to consider selling. If you if your hand speed is slowing down and there's lower collections for one reason or another, that that poses somewhat of a challenge. But assuming we have the opportunity to increase some things, this is something that a few of these things are people, things that anybody can do. So regardless mm. of your situation there with the, you know, with age or desire or whatever, you know, you can do some things to uh, increase basic, improve basic cosmetics of the office, like, like paint and maybe flooring and some, some, some very basic, you know, cosmetic items in the office. Um, I've been in some offices that are like that are very uh, dirty and cluttered. Uh, simple things like, you know, that that can help with a showing and uh, doesn't necessarily make a huge difference on the on like an appraisal. But but that's something that that helps. Those are very basic. Um, you know, you can engage a practice consultant to help get in there, run reports and do different things. We have people that we can introduce you to if you if you want um, that deep of a dive. I mean, there are some really good consultants out there. Some, some programs can be very expensive along those lines. So you want to be cautious spending too much money on a, on a marketing program. Um, but as far as you, you know, you, what buyers are looking for is active patients, good, solid, solid patient bases. You know, if you're, if, if your patient base remained the same, and then all of a sudden you did a bunch more crowns, 
that doesn't really do anything for your valuation. I mean, it may it may help, but people can kind of see through that, and banks and buyers can see through that if all of a sudden nothing really changed. So there are, you know, obviously through advertising, uh, and, and you know, a lot of established older practices do zero advertising, and so throwing some dollars at uh, advertising to increase that patient count. I mean, that's really what. Uh, folks are looking for are are those patients and the um, the and, and an established patient patient base, um, but I, I can't emphasize enough not you know kind of coasting to the finish line. If if you start kind of into that kind of coast uh, period, that can be uh, that that can be problematic. So the example of the dentist who wants to retire in a few years, isn't going to start to take more and more time off that just by itself, if it was a solo practice might be problematic for the valuation. Absolutely. I mean, that that's something where, you know, there, there's some things that we do and don't do. So we can kind of point you in the right direction. I, you know, each practice is, is different. And so we can, we can help advise on certain things, but you know, if there is, if 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 there is a decline in the in the office, or if there's let's say high staff turnover, it's good to um, you know try and address the decline, get your numbers at least maybe back up to where they were, show some improvement along those lines, show show that there's a nice stable staff in place. I mean that makes a big difference. Banks banks actually look at those things when they're lending on an owner user basis. Um, if it's if it happens to be a corporate sale. Those things are very important. Um, I would also suggest that sellers cut out uh, a lot of the non-essential expenses. So over time, it seems like expenses tend to just sort of accumulate in the office. And some of them are owner discretionary items, like personal things that they're running through the business. Mm. And we're not here to be your pastor or tax uh, advisor. <laughs> um So, it, but from a pure valuation standpoint, if you, let's just say, put personal expenses under lab cost, which happens, um, it's very very difficult for us to justify an add back or an adjustment to your valuation based on that. And so it happens. It's expected that there are some things that you may benefit from personally that you expense through the practice. But my, our encouragement is to clean up some of those things because it becomes very difficult for the person doing the evaluation, the buyer or the bank to separate out some of these, what we would consider to be owner discretionary items. So that, that's a huge one um, that can make a big, uh, you know, a big difference. This could be Costco bills. I mean, you, country club memberships, you know, things that are um, along, along those lines. Um, another one that I've run into, I just very recently was uh, ca a cancellation of a major, uh, PPO plan. And so the person canceled their PPO plan, basically just, just barely switched to fee for service. And they contacted us to see if we can help sell the office. It's, we can still find buyers in that situation, but having a major change in the office changes everything about how we evaluate the office and how the bank is going to lend on that office. So mm. it's, it's more of a, it's more of a, Hey, let's take what you have make some subtle improvements, um, both in the cosmetics, on the financial end, clean up the expenses. And those things collectively can make uh, a fairly significant difference in the office. We do encourage you to avoid major equipment expenditures. And that might seem a little bit counterintuitive. We've had some instances where, in fact, I, I also have this going on right now, where there's a seller contemplating a, a, a sale 
they're ready to retire. They have to retire because of their age and some medical uh, issues. But they had just purchased some pretty expensive equipment, and and they want to get basically that equipment dollar for dollar, and that just doesn't really happen. Mm. So you know, adding big, you know, spending six figures on some new equipment doesn't necessarily uh, make as big of an impact. Um, and but as, and along those lines, equipment and software going digital is likely to be a very good investment to make because if your office is not digital then somebody's going to want to make that upgrade from day one most likely mm-hmm. and so that's going to somehow be factored into the price um and 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 they're going to want to make that change now we can um I, i'm also dealing with that situation right now as well so we can also we can kind of bake that into our list price and, and go to market and say, listen, this is office, not digital, and kind of get a front, in front of the issue before somebody tries to negotiate on that basis. But um, it's something that most of your buyers are going to want to see. And so having a digital office, having some nice, consistent growth, you know, these are things that help. Um, overnight growth, it, it's, it might surprise some people to see that if they all of a sudden double their practice, that also raises, raises questions, primarily amongst the banks. They get very skeptical about that, and it gets harder to have get a buyer to get a loan if all of a sudden there's really fast growth because they're concerned, you know, well, is that growth sustainable? How did that happen? You know, those kinds of things. So growth is good. Um, but if all of a sudden you, you, you know, you, you double, it's probably, it's probably worthwhile to let that season and show that that's repeatable growth, that it's sustained growth. I think those things are, those things are really uh, important for buyers and banks to see. Um, none of these situations are necessarily deal breakers. If you've failed in one aspect or another, if you've made some of these, you know, if you've had made some of these mistakes, it's okay. We can still deal with them. It's just in a perfect world, you know, we, we have an opportunity to address some of these things upfront before you're forced to sell. So it's interesting to me how just some of the basic things that you mentioned in there are <laughs> relatable to just residential real estate and sort of like the upgrading the kitchen and the bathroom and uh, the landscaping, just giving giving a property or giving the business or the practice in this instance, just a little bit more curb appeal. Obviously, the dentist has to have the physical ability to continue practicing a little bit longer, all things being equal and, and the desire to do so. But in your experience... How much have you seen value increase in a relatively short amount of time? And again, we don't want it to be too dr- drastic as you just laid out. We don't want it to be too high too soon. Um, how much can just some of those little simple uh, curb appeal type upgrades increase value in, um, let's just say, two to five years if, if the dentist has that much more time they're willing to put in? Yeah. So, I mean, within a two to five year time frame, we could see dramatic changes in the value. And, that, and that's a time frame, you know, if we're that far out. That's a time frame where if you even if you did have a dramatic increase, it's acceptable to banks, it's acceptable in appraisals. You know, typically things are analyzed on a two to three year basis. And in the world of dental, we like to see like to see some things happening for, you know, your trailing 12 months is the most important. But there are some trends that, that are looked at over a longer period of time. And so if you've had high growth, you know, over that long period, that's fantastic. That's that's perfect. That's going to be perfectly acceptable if you just made some of the basic changes. And let's suppose there was only a, a slight increase in your cash flow or a slight increase in your collections. Even that can make significant differences, 10 to 20% in your sale price. If, if, you're, if you're taking what was a negative trend and turning it into a positive trend and doing some subtle changes on the cosmetics and, and, and cleaning up some expenses, nothing really dramatically changed in the office under that scenario, but it can make a huge difference in the valuation 
Um, and so it, it's just, you know, just that reversal of trend, uh, cleanup. I mean, these things are not that hard. And in my experience, a lot of dentists, dentist owners, there, there are very few that actually run reports and are very familiar with the numbers of their office in terms of new patients per month, um, collections, the difference between production and collections, um, you know, looking at some of their financial statements. After you've been operating in a practice for, you know, 10, 20 years, at some point, it seems like people start to let go of some of those things and they just kind of come in, they do their thing. So actually having some insight into your own financials also makes a big difference. You'd be surprised how many times we get in there, we pull reports and we start analyzing these things and the doctor's not really even aware of, of some of the trends that are taking place in their office. So I, I would say step one is just simple simple awareness, uh, becoming familiar with your office and, and, and what's happening from an objective numbers-based standpoint. So shifting gears a little bit, we, we touched on it in last week's episode a little bit uh, in that you said that the COVID and the pandemic had made dental lending a, <laughs> quite a bit harder, all things being equal. And while we're sort of on that topic that we've just touched on now about how uneven revenue can sometimes be problematic, how has the industry been affected, the lending industry been affected by some of the uneven revenue that's been caused by COVID-related issues, more or less? So this the state of the of the dental market is more complex because of COVID. So my background is as a dental lender. Obviously, I'm not in that space anymore, but we're very close. We stay very close to banks. We stay very close to what what's happening with rates and underwriting underwriting requirements, so that we can have a smooth transition. That's our objective. So the COVID has taken a lot of these trends that I'm speaking of and really kind of thrown a wrinkle in it because some of these things that I was just talking about with nice and, you know, increasing trends, steady trends, COVID kind of impacted directly, right? You may have had a down year. Um, so what we're doing is analysis around your rebound to try and present this to banks in, in a, in the most fair, but positive light possible. Um, and so that, that's kind of one of our main objectives as a as a broker is to make is to make a smooth transition. So the banks are evaluating COVID and, and all differently. And and the reason why we kind of discuss banks so much is that on an owner user buyer, you know, most times they don't have seven hundred thousand or a million dollars just to pay cash for an office. So we're dependent on the bank, and the bank the maximum that they're willing to lend tends to tends to you know drive valuation. Uh, to a large extent. Fortunately, there's still many players in the space. There's still many banks that want to lend uh, to new dentists and rates are still very low. And of course, that may change over time. But even if rates go up one to two percent from our from our discussion today, there is still that 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 change in rates is not going to make a huge difference to the dentist. So rates are favorable. Banks are competing for the business. They want the business, but they need to understand. They need to understand how you rebounded from COVID. Mm. So we're we're doing in some cases, month by month analysis. You know, we have a full tax year behind us. So 2020 is behind us. We have interim numbers. We have trailing 12 month numbers. So our objective is to is to say, okay, there was a down, you know, moment that everybody experienced, and ha here's how we can overcome that stuff. So we're looking at production and collections, sometimes month by month, year to date, trailing 12 months, and illustrating to the bank, hey, this is. You know, the, the practice may have taken a hit, but this is why 
we think it's still worth X. And along those lines, you know, every bank's looking at it differently. We have some instances that are perhaps more favorable. They're basically throwing out 2020. If we can show that 2021 is has recovered. So if, if the patients have returned, which I think by and large, most patients have returned at this point. If patients have returned, some places are tossing out 2020. In other instances, they're taking your income that you receive from PPP and adding that to your cash flow. So they basically leave the expenses that were there because you were forced to take on expenses through PPP staff and other salary costs. And they're adding to that cash flow to offset that the PPP income. And so and then and then, you know, there's each bank has their own way of viewing this and evaluating that down year. So that's our number one challenge and objective is to have smooth transition by explaining and illustrating to the bank what happened, how you've how the sellers recovered and and why the deal makes sense at the current valuation. It's a lot more difficult than it used to be. You mentioned something a couple minutes back in that answer, and I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say lending in some instances drives valuation? I mean, it really does. Uh, like it or not, well, there's a couple of things that really uh, that are driving today's market. Buy, buyer demand is the number one thing, really. I mean, that's what that's what ultimately drives drives the valuation. You know, we can say whatever we want to say, but if we don't have any buyers lined up, then then it's what was that worth? Nothing. So mm-hmm. the you know, the buyers have to be there. And right now there is a lot of buyer demand. And so in in my experience doing this, the banks have actually had to adjust their parameters to to accommodate for this buyer demand. And so there are, you know, it used to be so there was like a you know rule of thumb, percent of collections or whatever. And we all know that evaluation it consists of a lot more than just the percent of collections, you know, back of the napkin kind of math. Sure. Yeah. There, you know, the types of procedures being performed, the, 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 the type of hygiene program that you have, the, like I talked about the stability of your staff, you know, all these things, age of equipment, all these things play a role into the valuation of the office. And right now, buyer demand is very strong. That's paired with strong bank demand overall. Mm-hmm. And banks have had to kind of get more flexible over time. You know, dental lending is one of these things that's there, there's some players that have been around for a while, but then we've had some new entrants uh, in the banking space over the last, I'll call it five to seven years that have become very prominent. And they have had to essentially adjust these parameters to re- relax what might have been these old norms. And that is that's, you know, buyers are are basically pushing the banks to do this because they want to win over the next guy. And so if there's a really good office and a in a, you know, in a suburban area, bread and butter office, you know, there's going to be several offers most likely on that office. And so over time, you know, banks have been pushed to go more. So yes, I mean, I say that the banks drive valuation. That is true in part. It really is the buyers and the banks are, have, have been supportive of that. And they're also getting smarter. I mean, the longer that these dental programs are around, they're getting smarter about, uh, you know, different insurance plans and things along those lines. So they're, they're more efficient in their underwriting. A lot of times they're 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 getting you know a little bit faster, a little bit smarter about pitfalls, and uh, and they're and they're able to push up some of these valuations in a nice safe uh, in a nice safe manner to kind of to kind of match that buyer demand. So it's really twofold. Is the risk that much greater for banks now than it was pre-COVID or even five ten years ago? Um, you know, just in my experience, and I know maybe it's more geographic. I'm in Iowa, you're in Arizona. 
you know, <laughs> dental practices tend to cash flow. It tends to be a good deal for banks to be in that space. Yeah, generally speaking, yes. I mean, you know, there's if you are. Yeah, that's a tough one to answer because there's some banks that have been absolutely burned by certain aspects of their program. Right. So there have been some instances where I've seen banks essentially come and go from the space because of maybe a heavy presence in the startup uh, mm. side of the business. That has so, a higher failure rate, I guess, effectively. A little bit higher failure rate. And if you're if you're if you're a player in the dental space, you really can't ignore the startup area. Like you could say, like, we don't do startups, but we want to do these established practices. Well, then you're ignoring a portion of the market. So so somebody else is cultivating that startup relationship, and then that practice is becoming established. And then that they've they've at that point they've made a name for themselves. So if they're successful in the startup space, that's gonna kind of continue on as that practice matures and as as it sells. You know, a lot of cases, whoever has the relationship when the practice sells, you know, not not always, but sometimes that same bank uh, could be it could be the same bank that banks the buyer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that as these programs grow, you know, you really can't ignore the startup space. And that is a riskier segment of the market. Also, they're generally lending to on an unsecured basis. I mean, these are, right. yes, there's collateral in the practice or some equipment, but really it's not worth a whole lot, you know, if you were to just go auction it off. And so you're lending a lot of on the goodwill of the office. So inherently within the lending world, that is a more dangerous product than something that like, let's just say like real estate that has an appraisal loan to value. That's, you know, is up there's a more buyer um, then there is a fair amount of, uh, risk in that. And it is, uh, it can be a challenge. So yes, it's a safe space to lend in, but yes, you can also as a lender, get yourself into a lot of trouble. And that's why they have these guardrails. Mm, interesting. So another trendy topic in the dental industry is what has been told to me, a, a steady increase in dental service organizations or DSOs. What have you seen recently in the industry uh, the last few years? And what is your take? This is really high level, but on that trend, first and foremost. Yeah, so that that, that trend is very strong right now. And I, I, I don't personally think that DSOs are going to take over the world. I mean, somebody has to keep starting these offices to sell to DSOs in the first place, right? So they, you know, DSOs don't, don't generally not not i mean some of them do but not many of them most of them like to buy established offices mm-hmm. so you know it's kind of impossible for them to take over the world if if nobody's you know got an office to sell to them for to allow for the additional growth but there is a heightened uh there's heightened activity in that space and there's more money there's more liquidity and a lot of that goes back to covid as well there's a lot more liquidity in the overall system in equity markets and private equity venture capital across the board and so that liquidity has kind of spilled over into the dental market. This is a trend that's happening. No, no body or firm, you know, as far as like a brokerage can is really going to. Nothing's really going to stop that. Um, you know, there there are going to be players out there that have some deep pockets. They want a return on their capital, and you know, they're getting that by buying established offices, um, doing you know, generally over a million dollars in collections, and 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 then they turn around and, um, you know sell it after it's been stabilized there's there's different things that happen after after the the dso's purchase the practice but there's multiple models that exist there's the there is the dso model there's also dpos that are more partnership oriented um and when you get an offer from a dso um they they vary widely 
from company to company. So some are much more involved in the day-to-day -day operations of your practice. Some are less involved. Some of the you know exit strategies, oftentimes you're, you're, you're left with hanging on to 10, 20, 30% of the ownership of your practice in some form or another. Um, maybe that portion, a portion of that's going to be sold at a later date. Um, so you, you get a, a portion of your money up front. Some of that is held back in some form or another. And, you know, every company varies um, pretty widely in terms of what your involvement is like, what their involvement is like. And so finding a corporate buyer for your office is tricky. We've advised um, many people along these lines in terms of how, which, you know, we, we've been involved in some of these transactions. And so it's not, uh, it's definitely not for everyone. The exit is not immediate. You have to be willing in most cases to work back several years up to let's say five years or more. So a lot of these organizations want you to stay involved. They, they expect that and you have to keep your numbers up to get that final payout. And so, uh, you know, for that reason, it is definitely not for everybody, but it is a viable, uh, the, the multi, you know, the valuations are fairly high and, and it can be worthwhile. Where is the line between, you know, like kind of the, the smaller privately owned practices and the DSO? And is there now more of a middle market in there that is still considered more DSO-ish? I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but um, yeah. there seems to be more of a middle market forming in my, you know, very uh, circumstantial uh, understanding of things. Absolutely. No, you're you're 100% correct. So there is, when you say DSO, like we probably need like more acronyms because <laughs> we should maybe define it, huh? Yeah, it's just not. I mean, they're, they're they come in all shapes sizes now. So okay. there are some local DSOs that are basically, you know, a doctor that's become very successful in one office, and they bought another one. They bought another, and then they got like five or six offices. So that could be, you know, considered on the spectrum of a DSO uh, or corporate buyer. But that's really very different from the person that's backed by private equity that plans on doing a recap, you know, that like, those are two very different scenarios. Right. And so when you enter that space, and again, we've, we've done this a lot. It's, it's important to really identify what your objectives are, what the strengths and weaknesses of the practice are. And, and your, your objectives and situation in life are really going to drive a lot of this. There's, there's actually a fairly narrow window. Some people get really upset at the thought of selling to a DSO or, or the, even at the thought of our involvement in a, in a DSO. The reality is most sellers uh, that are selling to DSOs would not have otherwise been listing in the marketplace. So, or, or they, at least they wouldn't have in the next short while. So these are folks that are mid-career successful and they're going to be working for a long time. That is not the typical owner, user, seller, owner, user, buyer situation. Usually we're dealing with on an owner, user basis, retiring doctors. So when, when we have a DSO getting involved or any other type of corporate group, large or small, this is typically a mid-career dentist that's doing pretty well. And some of them are reaching down market into smaller offices with shorter transition plans with a selling doctor, but that's, few, that's pretty few and far between. And so I, my advice is that if you're contemplating a sale to a DSO, you know, a lot of these guys want to talk to you directly. The DSO wants to talk to you directly. They're out chasing sure. down practices directly, <laughs> making phone calls. They're doing things. In that situation, you have no representation, really. Right. So you, they're talking with you. They're negotiating out a deal. And that's great. If you can if you can 
um, if, if you're working, my, my, I would you know encourage people to work with a broker um, that is experienced in this because there are a lot of pitfalls along the way. But if you work with a broker that does that that does have some involvement with groups, you're generally able to get a higher valuation. So if you roll up with a group of dentists, you know that's more valuable to these corporate groups because then you're able to, you're generally able to get a little bit higher multiple under those situations. And so working with a broker that has some of these contacts and that knows what they're doing in this space can be helpful because they're more inclined to strike a better deal with somebody that is involved in this more frequently rather than just a one-off situation. If you're a one-off person selling, you're probably going to get a slightly lower multiple. So it's, it's a really tricky business to navigate. Definitely not for everybody. Um, and it's, it's a, um, it can be rewarding, but um, it's interesting. So maybe this goes without saying, but just to clarify, it'd be a heck of a lot riskier for a, a small dentist or a smaller practice to deal with a DSO or some third-party buyer on their own, sort of the, for sale by owner, than just selling to another owner doc, correct? So, you know, when we talked about for sale by owner on a, on a kind of an owner user basis, yep. um, primarily previously, and, and if you're dealing with a, a DSO directly, and and maybe you got their name from a friend that did it and it worked well, okay, you know, worked okay. But you're basically dealing with sharks. Yeah, they're a I lot mean, more shrewd was maybe what I was leading you to, right? Yeah, like <laughs> they know what I don't, they're doing. that's not to say they're bad people or anything, but these are very savvy business people that know exactly what they want. And, you know, th- there's things that I'm, I'm certain that individual sellers will miss along the way. And because they've never done this before, whereas the DSO has done this a hundred times before. And so, you know, you're just up against, uh, you know, you're up against some pretty tough, um, I don't want to say competition because they're your future partner, but you're up, your odds of getting everything to go, you know, to your odds of, I guess, of extracting maximum value for yourself as a seller are much lower if you're just, you know, go and approach these folks directly. And, and um, you know, that that's... Uh, that may not make some of my DSO friends, uh, you know, very happy, but that's just is what it is. I mean, there's, you know, these folks are very savvy and it's it's better to have somebody on your side, um, you know, working on your behalf to, especially if you have, you know, two, three, four, five, six offices, you know, if you're, if you're selling multiple offices and you have owned real estate and, and some of them and leased real estate and you've just made some capital improvements, I can just about guarantee you, you're going to leave something on the table in that whole process. And DSOs, you know, a lot of people here, multiple and EBITDA. Well, okay, well, if I can just figure out those two variables, then I should be in good shape. Well, it's not that fast. You have a you have a, an arrangement that's going to be in place for many years after you sell. And the 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 how you calculate EBITDA, EBITDA is a defined thing. You can look it up on Investopedia. It tells you exactly what EBITDA is there. Yet every DSO calculates EBITDA differently. And there's various reasons driving that, you know, depending on how much support they have and provide. And all those things change the addbacks that, that DSOs will factor into EBITDA. So, you know, somebody approaching this alone, especially, you know, I would say a, do- a doctor group of any size, um, it's much better to have somebody on your side through that process if that's the route you want to go. And trust me, our bread and butter is owner users. We like those deals. Um, we like that market. And it's more fun to work on because you're helping one person sell and one person buy. And it's and it's very rewarding from for me as a broker. Um, I love those transactions, but 
the DSO market can't be ignored. And some people are going to go that route regardless of what you and I say. And, and we want to help the doctor through that. And we want to help them get as high multiple as they can. So I wanted to circle back to something you said a, a couple minutes ago that was the move to DSO is, in your experience, being driven a lot more by the mid-career dentist now. Um, what what factors are driving that? Yeah, so the 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 DSOs, I mean, most of them are, these are corporate business people. They can't hop in the chair. And they, they have figured out over time that their success is dependent on that seller staying around for several years. Mm. And, and so they, they've kind of got that model dialed in to the point where, you know, if you're near retirement and you've only got a year or two left, um, then you're not a great candidate for a DSO. They're, they're more concerned about that transaction because it's your goodwill. And, and then, and then what happens if, you know, if you decide that you want out of the partnership, that, that transaction just went south in their view, if it's, if it's within a year or two or whatever time frame that's, you know, pretty close. So mid-career dentists that have five to 10 years left in the tank um, or more, you know, those are the folks that they really want. And then as they build their models, I mean, they like having, they like having people in the area. So you'll notice these DSOs kind of tend to get concentrated. Not, I don't think very many of them are evenly spread across the country. A lot of them are, you know, they get a pocket of success in buying practices in one spot, and then that area kind of grows. So they'll have like pockets of dentists. So what they're looking for really is to have is to have sponsors in the area. They're going to be around for a long time that can help onboard new dentists and coach as far as how they do things and all that kind of stuff. So, so for them, a mid-career dentist, much more desirable, you know, because they got good speed, all those things. You know, so if it's somebody that really truly hates enough, we've we have had many of these conversations. If it's somebody that really hates the management of their office, they just can't stand running the office and they just want to get in there and do dentistry and they've built a nice practice, but they're just kind of tired of the ownership aspect mm -hmm. of it and you're mid-career, it could be a good option. I mean, that that's that's really where it's probably the best fit for somebody. Uh, most of the sellers that we work with are um, are either past that phase, closer to retirement. And so that's where it can be helpful to have a discussion with us before, you know, before you're too far down your career to, to maybe strategize on some of these things and, and see what direction makes the most sense. Yeah. And that was kind of, you kind of answered the question I was about to ask, which is what makes it enticing from the, the owner dentist perspective. And it's just tired of maybe some of the ownership responsibilities, tired of heightened compliance, uh, can drive better economies of scale with a DSO than they can on their own or being a little bit smaller. And maybe taking some money off the table earlier in their career, perhaps too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's a it's a fairly substantial payday. Usually, uh, if you get the right deal, it's it's and you've got a successful practice. Um, yeah, the the payday is can be can be uh, you know very substantial in that case. So yeah, for all the re reasons that you mentioned, it can be it can it can be a t an enticing thing, and for for others, it could be a nightmare. If, you know, if you don't really, you know, there's some people that don't really like to let go of the control, right? If you, if you kind of like having the control and, and, um, you know, that, that can be a bad situation, you know? So it's probably for all of our control freaks out there, it's, it's probably better just to consider an outright sale because you are going to lose a lot of the say in the day-to-day -day of your office. And so, and that's where the organizations do vary quite a bit. Some of them are very controlling. Others, you know, give you the reins and give you a little bit more freedom as the owner. But, you know, once you sell your office, 
you're not the only person making those decisions anymore. And that's something definitely worth considering if that if that works well with your personality. This has probably been, uh, I guess, implied throughout a lot of this these two conversations. And if people have listened this long, then they're at least interested or continue to be interested in in hiring a transition specialist or hiring a, a broker to help with the sale of their practice. Uh, as we start to bring this second episode to a landing, what are what are the questions that a dentist should ask that potential transition specialist that they're looking at hiring? So there are there's a lot of things. I mean, I, if you were to just to do one thing, I would say ha- have them show you their their prospectus. You know, we we really pride ourselves on doing a deep dive into your business, getting to understand your financials, your production. You know, all those reports that I was referencing that most doctors have never never pulled or haven't seen recently, at least we pull them, we analyze them. So, you know, I think it's important to understand their, the broker's experience, how they present the practice, what type of, you know, some examples of transactions that they've done recently and what those valuations have been like. Um, I think it's important to ask about dual representation. You know, that for us is a big deal. We represent sellers. And so we're here to, to maximize value for, you know, for the seller, but also, and then the benefit to the buyer is that we have a nice clean transaction that can actually get across the finish line. So even though we don't represent buyers generally, we're, we, we all have the same objective. And so if somebody is in a legal agreement with both parties, that can be kind of a tricky situation for, uh, you know, for that broker to do a really good job. So um, I think it's important to ask you know, what that representation looks like. Um, I think it's good to know if if that if that broker will be personally handling the sale. There's some new models that have come up that are kind of a hands-off situation for the broker where it's basically like they'll help with certain aspects of presentation, but then it's kind of a, it's more of a hands-off sale situation. Um, you know, I think it's good to ask what type of trans, you know, what type of transactions have closed or fallen out in the last little while. No, no broker bats a thousand, but you know, there's the, the numbers can be revealing. And, and a lot of times we're referred into situations from people we've done business with before. So, you know, those things can, uh, can make a big difference. So, um, you know, we talked about what's in the contract in terms of first right of refusal. It's important to really understand what your obligation obligations are under your, um, under your contract. So if you're, if you're thinking about getting engaged with a broker, I'd say, it's good to have some conversations, know what your options are. Uh, we deal nationwide. It's good to it's good to know what the listing agreement entails. It's good to know what the prospectus entails. And uh, if if I were to kind of boil it down to a few things, I, I think it's I think it's going to be that. And if it and again, it goes back to if if things seem too good to be true, if they're promising the moon and the fees are low and it's just, you know, like there there's. If it's too good to be true, if it looks that way, then it probably is. So, you know, it's just I know it's a scary thing signing exclusivity. I kind of vouched for that in my in our last um, in our last discussion, um, and and I would add some emphasis on it's good to have an exclusive agreement with a really good reputable broker. You know, mm-hmm. the worst thing you could do is get into that situation with somebody that can't move the practice that's not motivated, and and then you're and then you're you know in a in a tougher situation. So if I'd say that would be my my response. Awesome. Well, David, uh, thank you again for for joining us for a second episode. If uh, you would, please give your contact information or the best way to, for people to find out more information about you and Menlo uh, for anyone listening. 
Absolutely. So we're at menlotransitions.com. Uh, my email address is david at menlotransitions.com. Happy to reach out. Uh, you know, of course, we do free consultations and, and, and be happy to have some discussions and see how we can help. That is David Haynes, Vice President of National Practice Sales with Menlo Dental Transitions. David, thanks again for, for sharing your expertise and for being a guest on the Practice Growth Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Terrell Advisors LLC is a registered investment advisor. The information presented should not be interpreted or construed as investment, legal, tax, financial planning, or wealth management advice. It does not substitute for personalized investment or financial planning from Terrell Advisors LLC. This podcast conveys the views and opinions of Sean Terrell, and the information herein should not be considered a solicitation to engage in a particular investment or financial planning strategy. Information presented is for educational purposes only, and past performance is not indicative of future results.